0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Slice of Healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. On today's episode, we have Dr. Ben Schwartz. Uh, Dr. Ben Schwartz is a fellowship-trained hip and knee replacement surgeon. He's also a member of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Patient and Public Relations Committee and an article reviewer for the Journal of Arthroplasty. Very excited to have... Dr. Schwartz on the podcast, he is based in Massachusetts as well, just like us, and also I want this to be the first episode of 2019, which it is, and some big things are coming in 2019, we're going to have some better content, we have an official uh, podcast song now, uh, as an intro song, rather than changing it up every single time, we really want to focus on continuing to get only the best guests uh, with what we're doing, and have some great conversations that healthcare professionals, students, and more want to hear. So, without further ado, let's bring Dr. Schwartz on. Hi, thank you so much for joining us on the Slice of Healthcare podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Not too bad. A little... uh getting some last-minute stuff done before the, the holidays. They, yep. they, they snuck up on me this year, <laughs> as always. Absolutely, always do. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you so much. Really happy to have you on the podcast. You are our first uh, surgeon, period, that's okay. been on the podcast. Uh, so we've had a mainly – nurse practitioners and other advanced practitioners like nurse anesthetists um, which I'm sure I'm not sure if you've worked with in the past or you work with only anesthesiologists. Uh, I
1: have and in fact I'm married to one as well.
0: Oh wow that's that works out great yeah we have a great relationship with uh, ANA Uh, that's awesome oh funny you didn't meet while you were working did you? Uh, Yes as a matter of fact (laughs) we met
1: uh, in the hospital where I was doing my uh, fellowship uh, and so that's where it sort of got started in the operating room, and um, went from there. And eight years later, here we are.
0: I've actually through this podcast and just through networking with healthcare professionals in general, that's a lot more common than I ever thought. I mean, because you're you're with each other for long hours uh, every single day, and it's tough for healthcare professionals in many fields that are working all the time to you know to meet these new people. So that's awesome. That's that's great. Another story uh, for for us to hear. Yeah, Great. definitely a, a
1: story, and, and my wife likes to talk about how I would walk into the OR and try to impress everybody, and um, <laughs> which is not true at all. Uh, but she likes to tell that story. So, uh, but that's our story. Yep. Excellent,
0: excellent. Well, I, I would really like Dr. Schwartz if you can kind of give everyone the, the we'll give them the quick version, and then we can go into some more detail. But a quick sure. five minutes about uh, you know who you are and uh, and what you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, so I'm an orthopedic surgeon specializing in hip and knee replacements. Uh, and I've been in practice a little bit over 10 years now, um, just outside of Boston on what's called the North Shore, which is about 20 minutes north of the city. So like I said, about 95%, if not more, of my practice is hip and knee replacements. I did a fellowship, do that down in Virginia, outside of D.C. in Northern Virginia, and then I did my residency uh, here in Boston, uh, Boston Medical Center. Um, so that 's sort of the the quick and dirty
0: excellent yeah it's uh we're so we're in Boston as well, so we're not far um I'm guessing you must see a lot of people then this is a busy for those that aren't from this part of the country like North Shore area is a very busy fast moving area
1: yeah, it really is it's a busy practice um you know it's a very population dense area, so there's a lot of people in a small area. And we draw people even from New Hampshire as well. Um, so it is a, a busy practice. A lot of people with hip and knee
0: arthritis. Now, what what does an average day look like for you uh, from start to finish?
1: Yeah, so it depends. Um, some weeks I'm in the operating room three days a week and some days it's
0: two days a week. So
1: if it's an OR day, it's anywhere between four and five. Surgeries that day, and then a clinic day is an all-day uh, affair. It's usually yeah, somewhere around fifty or so uh, patients in clinic. We always have a I always have a PA that works with me, so we sort of divide and conquer the patients. Um, I typically see all the patients at least um, for a few minutes just to kind of confirm everything that's been discussed. But the PA's help to
0: uh, divide the workload as well. Is there a good chunk of your day that's dedicated strictly to paperwork?
1: um yeah it's increasing obviously as i'm sure you've heard from other people there's a lot of uh, paperwork involved and i think there's a move underway as to with the government to try to cut down on some of the paperwork but particularly for what i do if the patient gets home services vna or physical therapy every patient that gets that it generates uh forms and orders and things that need to be signed so there's usually a stack of that stuff on my desk that i just have to buckle down and sign. Um, luckily, our practice setup helps to minimize some of the paperwork and then we have, um, you know, people that do fill out some of the paperwork for me and make it a little bit easier for me, but, you know, that's at my expense and it adds to the cost and the overhead. Um, so it's a trade off uh, from that perspective.
0: Yeah, it still amazes me after all these conversations with uh, healthcare organizations and health how much paperwork still exists today uh, that we haven't been able to streamline.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it still gets faxed, and I know people you know, feel like it's, it's crazy in this day and age that, that things are still being faxed um, back and forth with all the technology that we have and, and ways to sign things and electronic medical records and all that kind of stuff, but you know, there's still stacks and stacks of paperwork to sign.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I just read a stat the other day. It's something like 41% of hospitals across the U.S. still send faxes for their main, like, communication methods.
1: (laughs) Right, and some of it is, you know, one hospital has one electronic record that may not be the same record we have in the practice, so those two systems may not talk, or, um, you know, it's just as easier, or sometimes I feel like I sign it in the electronic medical record and then sign a paper copy as well, so I don't know how much redundancy there is in the system. Um, It's definitely an area that could be streamlined and save everyone time.
0: And and I believe in the next... Five to 10 years is where you'll see some of the most innovation happen within healthcare, especially with the, the millennial population quickly moving into those key roles within the uh, healthcare ecosystem. I just think that they're not going to stand for these some of these slow processes that still exist.
1: Yeah, that's a part of it too. Um, yeah, I think some of the older um, physicians maybe are a little less comfortable with um, going through the computer system and, and still feel better. Uh, signing a piece of paper. Uh, I, I'm pretty tech savvy, I'd like to think. So I don't mind doing it uh, electronically. Um, but oftentimes I think it's a little bit more convoluted uh, to do it that way for some people.
0: And that makes sense. And I mean, and it's especially with everything that's going on through someone's day to day within the healthcare field, uh, you definitely want them to be comfortable with whatever they're doing. They don't want to have to step outside their comfort zone just to. Uh, fill out a form, right? Until that changes. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of different sources too. So if you got to log into multiple different um, medical records or sites or what have you to sign different forms, that's one thing. But if you know they're showing up on your desk and whatever's there, you know, is there and you sign it and you're done, Um, I think it's a little bit easier to keep track of rather than thinking, oh, I haven't logged into the system to see who I got to sign recently, um, as opposed to just signing a stack of papers and knowing, you know, that's the end of it. So I think, you know, from that perspective, um, there's some chance for improvement as well. Absolutely.
0: I'm excited to see as, as those changes come into play as well. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, we have a lot of, we have a, diverse mix of listeners and a lot of our listeners are either medical students or they're they're thinking this is going to be the field that they want to get into this medical Mm -hmm. healthcare field in general Mm -hmm. could you quickly kind of give us an overview of the process to become an orthopedic surgeon what that looks like and at least what it looked like for you
1: yeah, so I mean, obviously, it, it sort of starts in college. Uh, I went to William & Mary, which is liberal arts, there was no pre-med, so to speak, major. Um, so I just had to make sure I took the courses that were necessary uh, for medical school, and I majored in biology. Uh, you take the MCAT uh, as the test to uh, gain entry into medical school, and that generates a score that you put on your application You to apply to Medical schools, as many as you feel necessary, go on interviews and then get accepted. Medical school is four years. So it's basically it's uh, everybody's together. You haven't necessarily picked your specialty at the beginning of medical school and it's your general sort of. Um, knowledge base um, and learning about all the different aspects of, of medicine. For my medical school, the first two years were classroom based. So it was basically you were handed a syllabus at the beginning of each course and then the test at the end of it uh, And were in a classroom and then the final two years were clinical and that you were in the hospital or in clinic on rotations. And then usually your third year of medical school is when most people choose their Specialty, so I chose orthopedics and was able to get an orthopedic elective rotation during my third year, uh, surgical rotation to get some exposure to that. Um, I also spent some time shadowing an orthopedic surgeon one summer, uh, I think it was between my first and second year, which I think is important because you may go to medical school thinking, hey, I want to be, you know, orthopedic surgeon, plastic surgeon, family practice, whatever. And not necessarily understand completely what that entails, because I can say when I went to medical school, I really didn't have a great understanding of what it took to be a doctor and then what the uh, different specialties actually um, did uh, in terms of the the details of it. So I think it's important to figure that out as you go along and figure out what you want to do and get exposed to it before you make any final decisions. Uh, But then once you've made your decision, you apply to residencies, you go on residency interviews. There's a what's called a match process. So you basically submit your rank of different residency programs that you're interested in with your top choice to your bottom choice. The residency programs rank you as well, and there's a, some sort of computer system that tries to match the residency program with the applicant. And so there's something called match day where all the medical students gather together and get an envelope that has in it where you're going for your residency. Um, and then for orthopedic surgery residency, is five years, the first year is an internship where you rotate among the different surgical specialties to sort of get a little bit of exposure uh, to all the different surgical uh, specialties. And then the final four years are orthopedics. And then uh, at some point you decide whether or not you want to subspecialize, uh, which in this day and age, most orthopedic residents coming out do subspecialize into another area of orthopedics, whether it's hand surgery or spine surgery, or in my case, um, joint replacement surgery. And then the fellowship is an additional year just learning um, your subspecialty. specialty So for me, it was an entire year of learning how to do hip and knee replacements and revision hip and knee replacements. So I guess if you add it up and you count um, college, was that I think it's a 14-year process uh, to get to the point of being uh, an orthopedic surgeon. So you know, it's it's a long haul.
0: Yeah, a lot, definitely a lot of a lot of schooling and and uh, especially in your field. This is something I've always been curious about. Particularly with surgeons. Were were you always okay when you were going through uh, different surgeries? Or was there a point like, did you have to like build your stomach up to the point where you can see these things and not like feel anything?
1: Yeah, it was never an issue where I was necessarily squeamish about it. I think you know the first time, if you're you know you're a medical student and you're on the rotation, you're scrubbed in, they hand you that scalpel. Um, you yeah, obviously it's a little bit nerve-wracking to think, you know, I'm about to cut this person over, and I got to figure out how to put them back together at the end of it. Um, so I think the first time I went to make an incision, it was basically like a paper cut. Um, you know, very go go very deep with the scalpel because you're not really sure. Uh, but obviously, that's what medical school and residency is for, to, to learn that. But you're really focused, and you know, when the patient's draped, and, and you're sort of focused on that individual part or whatever you're doing, um, I mean, you kind of forget about the other aspect of it, that, hey, I'm cutting somebody open. It's, hey, this is my task. This is what I'm trying to achieve. And you're really focused on that task. And so for me, that wasn't necessarily a difficult thing. It was It was getting comfortable, obviously, with that responsibility, but it wasn't an issue of being squeamish and you get a little bit exposed to that um as a medical student during anatomy lab in the first year but it is a different ball game um, when you're actually in surgery but uh, for me it wasn't an issue of being squeamish it was just um getting that confidence
0: because i i've felt so when i first started i i've watched some surgeries and different things and when i first saw it 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 affected me a little bit I, i got a little squeamish with it but i noticed the more i watched it 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 became more commonplace. do you Do you feel though today though it's it's a lot less even if you weren't squeamish before, it's like especially no big deal now because you've seen it for so many years.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, like I said, you' you're sort of focused on the task at hand of hey, I'm doing a new replacement. I'm focused on what are the steps uh, to do the new replacement, what am I trying to achieve um, in doing this procedure? Um, and so, you're not necessarily thinking about, hey, there's a, a person underneath here that I'm cutting open and say hey, this is a knee that needs to be replaced. And this is what I'm trying to achieve. These are the steps that I need to go through to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, and again, if you're in a more complicated case, like I did a case last week where I was taking a rod out of somebody's leg because they have broken their leg and making a hip replacement you are. It just, there's a, a checklist in my mind of things that I've got to go through, the steps I've got to go through to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. And that's really, you know, breaking it down to its steps and, and taking it one step at a time. And that's really what I'm I'm focused on at that point.
0: Very interesting. I, I want to, I want to transition into highlighting how we first connected a little bit. So I, for, for the audience that doesn't know, I actually saw a post that you had a video uh, it was through someone else. I think someone, one of my connections liked it. So I got to see the video that you posted mm-hmm. and it was a, I believe it was a patient that was walking with crutches three hours after, uh, I think it was total, total hip replacement. Correct. I, I want to go into that a little bit because I know, I, I knew that we were making strides to to make that a reality. But that was the first time I actually was able to see a see a video of it. So, what what has taken place over the years to make that more of a reality than, or it is a reality than what it was in in years past?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting evolution. So, you know, years ago when we first started doing hip and knee replacements, patients would come to the hospital ahead of surgery and get prep for surgery. They would be essentially bed-bound for a few days. They would be in the hospital for weeks at a time, um, slowly getting up and moving. And as things have evolved, we realized, well, you know, patients can come in the day of surgery. They can get up fairly quickly and start moving. Um, so by the time I was a residency and going through it, um, you know, patients would rest the first day of surgery. They would get up with physical therapy the next day. They would typically be in the hospital anywhere from three to five days. A lot of them would go to rehab um, for a few weeks to kind of get their strength up before going home. Um, I would never claim to be the first person to do outpatient hip replacements like this guy had or to you know be the, the pioneer of these techniques. Um, there's been people working on this for a long time, but it's become more mainstream recently. And there's been a few things that have led to this um, sort of evolution in hip and ear placements. We've gotten better with anesthesia techniques so that patients aren't groggy from the anesthesia they can really get up right away but still be comfortable because they've had a a spinal anesthesia they've had a nerve block so that their pain is uh, better controlled and they can actually get up and move around we give them a cocktail of medications before surgery that help to kind of preempt preempt the pain so they're not in as much pain afterwards we inject local anesthetic uh, into the wound to help them be comfortable And then what we found is the patients get up and move right away. They're a lot better than if they sort of play around in bed and get stiff and get swollen and get sore. Uh, So there's been this evolution. We've added these different aspects of it and and learned, hey, this is safe. And patients can do fine and do well and and go home after surgery and recover in their own comfortable environment and not be in the hospital where they might be more prone to infection. Um, And so it's not for everybody, for sure, but in the right patient to be able to get up right after surgery and and go home and recover at home can be an attractive uh, option.
0: And I'm sure coupled into that, there's a financial benefit to the hospital in getting that patient up out of the bed quickly as well. Right?
1: Yeah. So there's two, um, and it gets to be a little bit, um, tricky. So the the case that I posted was done in a surgery center that's owned uh, in part by a group of physicians, of which I'm one. It's, it's owned by a national company to help us set it up. So I do uh, financially benefit from the cases I do in that center. And um, that is uh, potentially an area um, of conflict of interest. So you have to be careful and make sure that your still applying the appropriate criteria that you're not taking patients there that are uh, inappropriate or uncomfortable with it. Uh, I see it as a benefit of being a part owner uh, in this facility because it basically if the center doesn't do well or there isn't a good reflection, we don't do a good job taking care of patients, then we're not going to do well. It's something that I have, the ability to make um, changes, and it's my staff, it's my equipment, and it's my protocols, um, as opposed to doing these cases in a hospital um, where you can do it on an outpatient basis uh, as well. Um, but it's uh, basically uh, a lot of it's the hospital rules. And I don't have quite as much uh, input and in say uh, from that perspective. So, You know, outpatient joint replacement is going to become more commonplace, but there will be some criticism in terms of uh, you have to be careful about the financial incentive and not doing inappropriate surgeries there in terms of whether or not it's safe. And I think there's some people that still believe it's not safe to do this on an outpatient basis. Um, Certainly not in everybody, and I would agree it's not safe in everybody, but I do think there are people that are healthy and motivated enough to have the surgery done on an outpatient basis. And there's data coming out now to support that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think it really comes down to how healthy is the patient that's in this situation too, and uh, and and I've I've talked to many healthcare professionals, and it's it's amazing, it's and it's great how patient cent centric, even though they are financially incentivized, you know, to in many cases get these patients out of the beds as quickly as possible, how patient centric they are, and everyone really wants to do. On 100% what's best for the patient. And if that is getting them out early, then they'll do it. Great. Um, I want to go into a topic that we always discuss with our guests on Slice of Healthcare, and this is something that you and I touch base beforehand, and, and that's healthcare innovation. So we can touch base into a topic that you wanted to bring up, but I'd also like to hear other areas as well, where you, you believe we can innovate more in healthcare.
1: Yeah, I think specific to what I do, you know, hip and knee replacements, there's sort of this perfect storm that's been brewing. Uh, We have this baby boomer population of people that were born, you know, in the uh, mid to late 40s and and, uh, early 60s that are getting to that age where a lot of them are experiencing arthritis and there was this huge you know, boom of population during that time that are now needing arthritis care and are going to require hip and knee replacement um, and it's a medicare problem because they're at the medicare age medicare already spends something like seven billion dollars a year on hip and knee replacements and that is going to get worse potentially as more and more of these patients require these procedures and it's it's a huge area of focus of how do we account for this um, coming um, increase in need of joint replacement care when it's already very expensive and so there's been a lot of different models that have come into play bubble payment where you basically set a flat fee uh, and try to uh, meet that um, price and if you're underneath it then great you're a good performer Um, but if you're over that then you're uh, sort of over your goal and, and costing the system more money and can be a low performer um, there's value this shift from uh, what's called fee-for-service, where you just get paid a flat fee, to value-based care, where uh, you're paid based on how you perform and how well the patient does and how well you can save money to the system. You know, the question is how well the system's going to work, uh, and can we come up with another system or a better system? Um, to me, hip and knee replacement care is, sort of falls in this gray area between, well, they're elective surgeries. It's, you know, hip and knee arthritis is not a life-threatening problem. But in a way, it's, it's not elective and that it can be very debilitating to suffer from hip and knee arthritis, and these procedures really allow people to get their quality of life back. So it falls into this kind of category of uh, semi-elective, not really emergent, but it's elective surgery uh, for people. And, and, and can you really streamline that care? And you come up with protocols that are really dedicated just to delivering hip and knee arthritis care. Can you build centers that are uh, incorporating technology to really increase your ability to deliver that care based on protocols that are proven to reduce complication rates, improve efficiency, improve costs. So, you know, my dream would be to have a center that's focused on hip and knee replacement and hip and knee arthritis care from start to finish that's totally integrated, um, where you can collect all the data, analyze data, improve your models over time, deliver great, uh, high quality, efficient, low cost, uh, healthcare and do that in a way that's valuable to you know, everybody that has a stake in the game patients you know the government and, and medicare patients health insurance companies and how do you um, put that together uh, and make it also attractive to physicians because i think physicians are feeling a lot of the, the pressure now we have the physician burnout issue you know we talked about electronic medical records and forms to sign and, and it seems like um, there's just increasing administrative burden that takes time away from your ability to care for patients. So, you know, my dream or innovation would be to create hip and knee arthritis centers that are really just focused on that and do it so well, so efficiently, with such low complication rates and high patient satisfaction, um, almost like a micro sort of hospital or micro um, health system um, concept.
0: And would there be, and I'm guessing there would be specific uh, requirements and and almost what self-made regulatory uh, parameters to follow to make sure that these excellent centers meet a certain threshold. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's basically how do you prove your value to the system? Well, you prove your value to the system by getting great outcomes, having low complication rates and really having transparency. If you're transparent with your data and your outcomes and you can get great data and outcomes and that's, that's really your best um, advertisement or your best argument for your, existence of, hey, you know, we do it better than anybody else because we really focus on this uh, one specific area and we're really good at doing it. Um, and we can show you our data. Our data is transparent in terms of what our uh, complication rates are, what our satisfaction rates are, you know, our, what our costs are. We can do this so efficiently because we're so good at it because it's nearly all that we do. Obviously, you always want some degree of oversight and you want um, an outside entity making sure that, um, you know, you're on the up and up and what you're reporting is accurate. Uh, but again, I think it's just a, a center that's focused on doing this so well, um, because that's all you do, and you've really streamlined, and it evolves over time as you analyze your data. Uh, you can uh, tweak your protocols um, and change the way you do things to try to continually get better by continually analyzing the data and, and seeing how you're doing.
0: Well, I definitely want to, We'll we'll get to that in a second, but this is something for for anyone that wants to learn more about this, we'll we'll have to have them connect with you. And, and I I think that's, that's how we really innovate in healthcare, right? It will be a mix, which this is the first call that you and I had. It's going to take a mixture of insiders and outsiders that, that throw all these ideas together and the possible solutions and then determine what the best outcomes will be moving forward to, to hit those.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it it is going to take some people that are outside Healthcare, because I think there are obviously a lot of um, innovators and smart people, whether it's in the tech world or entrepreneurs that are outside the medical field that can come at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective. And we tend to be a little bit more traditional and a little le- uh, more risk averse, or certainly a little less willing to, you know, think outside the box in healthcare because, you know, look, you stick to what works, and this is what's uh, been proven to be effective over time. Um, And so I think there's a tendency to be a little bit more conservative, but if you have somebody that comes at it from a different viewpoint um, that's willing to innovate that maybe you can come together uh, and really make a a significant change for the better in the way that healthcare is delivered. And again, I think um, hip and knee arthritis care is a perfect example because it does fall in that area sort of between elective and and non-elective and because it is going to be such a a focus going forward um, with this baby boomer population.
0: Yeah. And I think innovating in general, when you like in your position, you're at that level of unconscious competence where you don't even have to think about what you're doing. You just know how to do it because you've done it for a while. And that goes the same for technologists and entrepreneurs. They have that same level in their respective fields. So bringing those people together, it just it produces good things over time, for sure. Uh, Well, Dr. Schwartz, I, I want to Thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. I would like to, you know, give this give you this time for any closing remarks, and maybe you can tell some people where they can contact you and and reach out if uh, if they wanted to chat more about any of the the issues and topics that we discussed today.
1: Sure, no, I appreciate you having me on. It was great uh, to have a forum to express my ideas. Um, obviously, uh, you found me through LinkedIn. I think that's a great uh, resource. It's something that I. Took for granted until recently and didn't realize what a great resource it is. So uh, they can look me up on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a, a website that I started, uh, BenSchwartzMD.com, that uh, has some more information about me and what I do uh, as well, which is another um, great resource. And I can be emailed through that website uh, as well.
0: Great, and I will put all those links uh, that you just discussed in the show notes. So anyone wants to easily get in touch with you they'll just click on it and head right over to your profile or website yeah absolutely great well this will be uh, airing in 2019 so look forward to it being the first slice of healthcare podcast episode of the new year and let's let's definitely stay in touch i mean you're north shore i'm north shore i would love to uh, uh touch base in person sometime and do some sure, networking absolutely. as well that yeah, sounds good great well happy holidays enjoy and uh, we'll talk soon all right, sounds good. You as well. Thank you. All right. Bye.